This evening we are in session number two in our series of studies on the seven churches of uh, Revelation, and we have entitled it as the postal route because this was indeed the postal route from Ephesus to Laodicea. Last week we looked at the church in Ephesus who had left their first love. And this evening we are looking at the church in Smyrna and the passage of scripture we are looking at is in Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 11. Here was a church that was facing persecution. Here was a church that was facing tribulation because of their faith. And the interesting truth is that this is the only church which has uh, no negatives in it. It has all the positives that the Lord speaks for this church. Let me read to you the passage in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so you have this church in Smyrna. You also have the church in Philadelphia where there is nothing negative, okay? So this evening we're looking at the church in Smyrna, the ancient city of Smyrna. It was located about 50 miles north of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea in a pleasant location with a prevailing gentle west wind. In other words, it was a very nice city, okay? In a, Coastal city, nice gentle breeze. It was also a very, very wealthy city. A couple of more important truths about or facts about the city. It was a free city. Okay, it was a free city, one that you know, uh, knew the meaning of loyalty and fidelity to Rome. It was the first city in the world to erect a temple to the goddess Roma and to the spirit of Rome. In other words, <laughs> this was a city that was very much attached to Rome. And definitely when you're thinking about Rome, it also had the Caesar worship. But this was also a city which had a large population of Jews, you know. And these Jews were not only influential, but these Jews also did everything that they could to hurt the Christians. So the persecution came also from these Jews. Another interesting fact about this city is that it received its name from a, a perfume called myrrh. So Smyrna is the iconic Greek for myrrh, which was a perfume used in burial. And many believe that this church represents the martyrs of all time and the sweet-smelling fragrance of their devotion until death. And unlike Ephesus, this city still stands even today. Now, today the city is called Izmir and is located in Turkey. The population is 2 million and the modern city is actually built over the ancient one. What about the religion? They had a temple for Athena. They also had a temple for the goddess Roma. Caesar worship was very prevalent. And also you had the Jews who had their own synagogue. So there were a lot of pagan temples dedicated to different gods and goddesses. Plus there was also this anti-Jewish population. So this is where the prime persecution came from. They were living in a society that was not really favorable for Christianity, but they still stood firm. Olympic Games were dedicated to Zeus, you know, were held here in a magnificent 20,000-seat stadium, which was actually built for these games. And it was in this very same stadium that Bishop Polycarp was martyred in 155 
AD. Okay. Now, this is the background of the city of Smyrna. What about the church at Smyrna? What do we know about that history? It is probable that it was founded during Paul's third missionary journey, where he spent two years in, a, in nearby Ephesus, where we read in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. So in his third missionary journey, when he went around the cities that were near Ephesus, and this city, Smyrna, is definitely near Ephesus, it is probable that this church was founded at this time between 53 and 60, uh, 56 AD. Apart from this, we have no other information of how and when this church would have been founded. Let's move further and look at Christ's revelation of himself to the church at Smyrna. How did he introduce himself? If you notice, as we are doing these studies, we are also recognizing that Jesus had his own unique way of presenting himself to each church according to what they were going through. So what did he reveal about himself? Two important things. First of all, he introduces himself as the first and the last. First and the last. When you're speaking about the first and the last, it is speaking about Jesus is the one who is the Almighty One, the one who is in control, the one who is in charge, the one who is the sovereign one. So when it speaks about he is the first, he is not first in the sense that he was first created being, but he is the first in the sense that he is before all things and that he is in control of all things. So when the church is going through persecution, when the Lord comes and says, yeah, I am the first and the last, I am the one who is in control. That would have been an encouragement to them to know that God knows what's happening to us. So, as a result, we will continue to stay firm. And that should be the encouragement. When we speak about the fact that Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, primarily it speaks about the God who is in charge. So, when we go through tough situations in life, if you can remember, the God who is in charge is there with us that would help us to go through the struggles of life. As the psalmist would say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because thou art with me. Secondly, he introduces himself as he is dead, he was dead, and is alive. Was dead and is alive. This is the gospel of our salvation. So when they are going through pressures for their faith, Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, look here, this is the truth. This is the truth. Are you willing to die for your truth? Is your faith strong enough, you know, firm enough to believe that which you are affirming? And are you willing to even give your life for what you believe in? If our faith is not something that we are willing to die for, the question would be, is our faith really strong? You know? Is our convictions really strong? So when Jesus comes and says he's the one who's dead and alive, he's saying Jesus died for our sins according to scripture, rose again third day according to scripture. This is the truth. This is the faith. This is the object and power of our faith. And this is the assurance that if this is the truth, he is going to take us through. So when we are going through questions, when people may be asking, and you know, when uh, individuals uh, persecute, ridicule us for our faith to say, hey, what are you guys believing in? The truth that he's the one in charge, we can face any ridicule. The truth that he indeed is the salvation point. He is the gospel of our salvation. This is the good news. The, the confirmation or the assurance of that would give us the strength to go through whatever situations we will go through, okay? Fifthly, let's move further and look at, you know, what does the Lord say about this church? When he looks at this church, you know, what does he say? A couple of important truths. Number one, he says, I know your works. I know your works. Now, remember, we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, okay? But we are definitely saved 
unto good works. We are saved for good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. So, the scripture is saying, the Lord, when he looks at this church in Smyrna, he's saying, yes, you're standing firm for your faith, and I'm looking at what you are doing. Okay, the word that is used there for works is the Greek word ergon, which means that which one is occupied with. So what the Lord is saying is, I know what you're doing every day. You know, I know what is on your mind. I know what you are occupied with constantly. I know what your occupation is. Okay. I know what you are doing. Okay. Now that is you know, something that we must you know, uh, stop for a moment and ask ourselves, if the Lord says that he takes account of everything that the believer does, and one day we have to give an account of our works before the judgment seat of Christ, you know, what would our response be when the Lord looks at our lives this evening and says, I know your works. When he looked at the church in Smyrna, that was a commendation factor. They say, I know your works. The works that you are doing is the works that I have foreordained. The works that you are doing is standing firm for me. The works that you are doing is, is the service to me. When the Lord looks at our works even this evening, would he be able to say that of us? Let's ask ourselves, what is occupying our mind? What is our works? What do we do 24-7? What is that which you know, consumes our, you know, our emotions, our, you know, our intellect, our will? You know, what do we do with our time? You know, that's a question we must ask ourselves even this evening because here the Lord says, I know. I have examined, I know it. Secondly, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. The word that is used here for tribulation is the Greek word, which means pressure or a literal crushing beneath a weight. You know, such an intense pressure as if it is crushing you. You know, the Webster's different dictionary and you know, it gives a definition of this word as the cause of continued pain or distress or great suffering. Okay? So what the Lord is saying is, not only I know your good works you know, that you are doing, which I appreciate, I also know the pressure that you are going through in maintaining this stand. Okay? Now, if somebody comes and tells us when we go through a lot of stress and strain in life, you know, I know what you are going through. Okay, oftentimes, what will our response be? Hey, you don't know what what I am going through. How can you know what I am going through? The pressure that I am facing is far different. Okay, but when the Lord says, "I know what you are going through," we can definitely know that He knows because when He was here in us. The scripture tells us he was tempted in all points like this we are, but yet without sin. The pressure was so strong on him that in the garden of Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood. So he knows what it is to be crushed under the weight of pressure to yield, but he did not yield. So this is why when the Lord says, I know your tribulation, we know that he really knows. So when we go through the pressures of life, you know, we call it at times as peer pressure, pressure to conform to society, to the environment. When the pressure seems too strong, remember the Lord says, I know your pressure. So as a result, don't give up. Keep pressing on because he is the one who is the first and the last. He is the one who is with us during those times of pressure. Thirdly, he says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. Poverty. Now, the church at Smyrna, the scripture is saying, I know your poverty. But the city at Smyrna was a very prosperous city. Okay? So, the fact that the church was poor seems to imply an economic persecution. An economic persecution. Maybe, you know, because you know, of the stand that they took, you know, they were not able to get jobs or they were not able to get different things that was needed, things were not uh, nah, allowed nah, to be given to these individuals because they were Christians. You know. Primarily, there was an economic persecution when the scripture tells us that you know, 
I know your poverty. Now, the word that is used here for poverty also describes an absolute poverty, an absolute poverty. There's another word that you know, speaks about you know, you know, one who has the necessities but nothing of the luxuries, okay? Now, that is not the word that is used here. The word that is used here describes absolute poverty or complete destitution, complete destitution. So, the Lord is saying here, I know your poverty. I know you are poor. Now, is that a commendation? Yes, because the Lord is saying, look, in spite of the economic persecution, you have not given up your faith because of some riches that you could obtain. I wonder in today's world, when the church faces persecution all across, also there is that other situation where the people in the church are also promising financial prosperity. Now, what does the Lord speak about for this church? The Lord says, now does the Lord say, you are financially prosperous? No. The Lord is saying, I know your poverty, the poverty, the reason for your poverty, because of the stand, because of your economic persecution. Now, in a world that we live in, which promises so much of financial gain, so much of financial prosperity, Oftentimes, at the cost of your faith, the question we must ask ourselves is, have we given in? Have we given in to compromise? Just so that we will have a comfortable life. Just so that we will you know, have you know, a reasonable, rich life. But the Lord here says, look here, I'm looking at your life, and I'm saying that I know your poverty, but yet I'm there with you in the midst of that poverty, and I'm definitely being able to meet your needs. This is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God knows us, observes our lives, and meets our needs to say that he cares for us. So, even though they were poor, bracket if you notice, the Lord says, yet you are rich. Okay? So, he's saying, you know, your treasure is in the right place. As a result, you know, you know, your heart is in the right place. Your treasure is in the right place in eternal matters. So you're really rich people. So don't look at yourself down because of the you know, economic persecution. But look at eternity because you have actually stored up riches in heaven. That is the assurance that the Lord gives to these church at Smyrna. Fourthly, he also says that he knows they are persecutors. He knows they are persecutors. Okay. Who are the persecutors? The persecutors were individuals who were from a Jewish background, who were Jews by you know, religion, but they were not really true Jews. Okay. And the scripture says over here they were blasphemers or they were slanderers. Okay. These were religious Jews who claimed to be the seed of Abraham, but they were only physically Jews, but spiritually they were under the control of Satan. Okay? So the word that is used here for slander, this is the, literally the term for blasphemy, which has the Old Testament connotation of reviling, and it was usually used in connection with verbal attacks on Yahweh. So, what were these verbal attacks that they were doing? They say they are Jews, but they are not. They say they are Jews, but they are not. And the scripture is saying they are actually of the synagogue of you know, Satan. If you are not of God, you are actually of the devil. Okay, That's a clear-cut distinction in scripture. And that's a clear-cut distinction that you also find over here. There's no halfway point. The Jews could not say, I have religion, but as a result, I don't belong to Satan. No, when Jesus was here on earth, remember, he told them very clearly, you belong to your father, the devil. You know? So, here were these individuals whom the Lord calls as from the synagogue of Satan. In other words, you know, they were not really true Jews, and they were reviling, blaspheming primarily meaning they were reviling, they were speaking against God. What would be the message that they would have in speaking against God, okay? 
Now, these were individuals, if you notice, you know, during that early church period, people from a Jewish background who claimed to be Christians, but who also said that they have to observe the law. Okay? The main error was in teaching that the salvation is by grace plus the law and requiring believers to keep the Mosaic law. So here were individuals, Jewish background, who said, we are believers, okay? But they also said, you guys have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to observe all the, you know, the regulations of Old Testament law. Then and then only you are really a Christian. And when these Gentiles especially were not doing that, they would have definitely faced opposition from these people. So this is the group that is being addressed here. Individuals who claimed to be genuine, but they were not really. And such strong words are used to say that they are from synagogue of Satan. In other words, in, in today's understanding, it would be anybody who says that salvation is by grace plus works. Okay, That's where the problem comes in. It is by grace through faith. It is not the plus works. It is not Jesus plus something else. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, a couple of important thoughts again over here. The Judaizers confused the church with Israel. What do you mean by that? Okay, Individuals who said, now Israel has become the new church. So as a result, whatever was true for Israel, is true also for the church. So if the church, if the uh, Israelites kept the law, the church also has to keep the law. They equated you know, the church as the new Israel. And as a result, they brought a lot of the Old Testament rituals into the church. And that can happen even today, isn't it? Individuals who speak about, you know, all that was in you know, a the blessings and the promises that was given to uh, the nation of Israel is for the church today because the church is actually now the new Israel. No, no. The church is the body of believers. You know, that's a clear-cut distinction. Now, what happened when you know, these uh, individuals began to bring the Old Testament pattern into the church, then the Old Testament laws and festivals into the church, then the Old Testament rituals also were brought into the church. So the early church then became speedily Judaized. You know? In other words, the emphasis was more on a visible physical temple, on a George's and a ritual maybe, on an accredited priesthood with all the garments and you know, other things that were associated. And then as a result, it had all the trappings you know, of something that was very spiritual, but there was no heart at all in it. That is why Jesus looks at them and says, they are Jews. They say they are Jews, but they are not. They are actually belonging to Satan. They are actually belonging to Satan. So this is something that we must check up. Anything that goes under the name of Christianity, churchianity, is not necessarily you know, the true thing. It's the biblical thing. And the Lord looks at it. The Lord can... And a decipher, the Lord can see through and find out people who call themselves Christians, are they truly Christians or not? Matthew Henry has an interesting comment about this when he says, Those assemblies which are set up in opposition to the truths of the gospel and which promote and propagate damnable errors, those which are set up in opposition to the purity and spirituality of gospel worship, and which promote and propagate the vain inventions of men and rites and ceremonies which never entered into the thoughts of God, and those which are set up to revile and persecute the true worship and worshippers of God, these are all synagogues of Satan. Strong words. He presides over them, he works in them, his interests are served by them, and he receives a horrid homage and honor from them. And the question we must ask ourselves, and in today's perspective, you know, when you look at these type of churches that will still exist, here it is called as the Judaizers, 
But in today's time, it will be those people who call themselves Christians, who have all the big setup, but there is no life whatsoever. And oftentimes, the opposition, the persecution could come very well from these same people who call themselves as Christians, but who are really not Christians. Moving further, what is his exhortation to this church? You know, what is his exhortation to this church? In verse 10, we read, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Okay. So the first thing that he says is do not fear. Do not fear. Okay. Now this carries the idea of stopping an act already in progress. Okay. Already in process. So when the Lord says, do not fear, okay, and then he continues further and says, hey, you're going to suffer more things, okay. He does not say, do not fear, everything is going to be honky-dory. He does not say, do not fear, you're poor now, you're soon going to get rich. No, no. He says, do not fear because you're still going to suffer more. So when he's speaking about do not fear, he's saying, you know, you're already, you know, sort of anxious about the future, what is going to happen, okay? But he says, don't fear, don't fear. Why? How did he introduce himself? He said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who is in charge. So concerning fear and suffering, do not fear is literally fear nothing. No matter how small or how severe, the one who has overcome death is saying fear nothing. In other words, the ultimate of the fear of what will happen is you may die. Okay? But Jesus says, I have overcome death. So as a result, do not fear. And then he moves further and says, hey, what is going to happen? He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Okay? Don't fear. Now I wonder if when we are going through some hard times, hardship, the Lord comes to us and says, don't fear, things are going to get worse. <laughs> Would that be an encouragement? Don't fear, the devil is going to you know, put more obstacles coming your way. Now, when the Lord says do not fear, that should be the encouragement, isn't it? You know? We are not psyching ourselves up. We are not saying the best is you know, going to come at the end of a dark tunnel, something good will happen. You know? We are not thinking positive thinking over here. We are saying when the Lord is saying do not fear, Remember when the disciples were in the boat, you know, with uh, Jesus and there was a storm and the disciples were all panicky and they woke Jesus up, isn't it? You know, and what did Jesus say? Hey, why are you so fearful? Why are you so fearful? What did he mean? He said, hey, I'm sleeping over here with you. If I'm there with you in the boat, why should you be fearful of whatever will happen? What is going to happen? The boat will capsize. I'm there with you, you know. Will the boat capsize with the Lord himself in the boat? It's not going to happen, you know, so don't worry. So, the Lord is saying, oh, the worst thing that you can think of may happen, but don't worry, I have overcome. So, don't fear that suffering. Don't fear the suffering. And when the Bible is speaking about the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, okay, it would, uh, now the word that is used here for the devil is always, you know, the accuser of the brethren, okay. So it could be actually a literal prison, or it could also be he could slander your name and it can put you into a prison. Now that happens, isn't it? When you're taking a stand for God, here are individuals used by Satan who come along and say all sorts of things against you, spoil your name, pull you down, you know, malign your name, assassinate your name. And then you can feel as if you are in a prison. What's the point now? My name is spoiled. This is what has happened. This is what this person has done. And you can get yourself all blocked in. But the Lord says, don't fear. Don't fear this uh, slander. Don't fear these accusations. Don't fear at all these fiery darts that the Satan can throw at you. Why? Because the Lord has overcome. He has overcome life. He has overcome death. You know? and, and because of his death, burial, and resurrection, no matter what Satan and his force can do to us, the one who is in us is far, far greater. So the Lord says, don't fear, don't fear the suffering. Secondly, he also speaks about the future. Okay, 
he says, hey, it's going to be only for 10 days. You know? Look at that scripture. He says, you know, he is about to throw you, some of you, into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Okay. Now, would that be an encouragement? You're going through intense persecution. You're going through some intense slander from people. And the message of the Lord comes to you and says, hey, it's going to continue. It's going to continue for 10 more days. You know? How do you look at it? Would you look at it as 10 more days? Or would you look at it only 10 days? Okay? Your attitude will make a big difference, isn't it? When the Lord says over here, it's going to continue for 10 days and it's going to be a testing. What the Lord is saying here, it's not going to be permanent. It's not going to be permanent. And that's an important lesson the scripture teaches us right through, isn't it? The storms in life are never permanent, but our attitude in the midst of those storms will make the difference. So when the message comes in and says, you're going to have it for 10 more days, either you can be so upset and say, Lord, why 10 more days? Or you can say, Lord, it's only going to be 10 more days. And in those 10 days, your attitude will make the difference. The testing in those 10 days, whether you're going to give up and feel frustrated with yourself and with God, or whether you're going to stand firm and say, this is going to pass, this is going to pass, okay? So that's just a testing that is going to come. Now, when you're looking at that 10 days, okay, it primarily means a short period, or it could also refer to what they say, 10 principal persecutions under the Roman emperors from Nero to Diocletian. In other words, there were 10 major persecution periods later on. So the Lord is saying, this is what's going to happen. And from the eternal perspective, it is definitely a short period of time. And the Lord is saying, yeah, this is going to be a, a testing. It is going to be a testing. So whether it was physically 10 days, whether it was a period of time, the emphasis definitely is that it is going to be a short time. And at the end of it, there is definitely going to be the victory. And this should be our attitude when we go through the struggles, when we go through the pressures, when we go through the testings, when we go through the persecutions, this should be the attitude. There are all sorts of trials and tribulations in this life, but the believer has no need to fear any of them, whether it is pain or sickness or disease in himself or a loved one, family trouble, persecution, old age, death, the present or the future. The Lord encourages us even this evening and says, hey, don't fear any of these things because fear is a dangerous thing. We must never allow fear to gain control over our lives because fear begets fear, but faith begets faith. So this evening, when you're looking into your life, you know, how close will your life be in comparison with the church at Smyrna? When you think of the persecution, is that that intense? When you're thinking about what you're going through, are you saying it is so much, I can't bear it? Would you be like the church at Smyrna when the Lord came and says, do not fear. They took it to heart, responded by faith, and fear went out and faith took control. Christ knows the future because he is the one who is all-knowing. And he says, do not fear. Okay. Secondly, he exhorted them to be faithful unto death and promised them a crown of life. Now look at it. He says, testing is going to come. The testing is going to come for a short time, short period. Okay. And then the word of encouragement is be faithful unto death. You know, he says, you may die. You know, you may die in the process, you know, but <laughs> don't give up. Okay. Oftentimes, we are so afraid of dying that people compromise their Christian living for that. But Jesus is saying over here, be faithful until death, okay? Because death is only a stepping stone for what? I will give you the crown of life. I will, be, I will give you the crown of life. The emphasis here then is for the believer to continue in faith, even if it means 
physical death. And some believers were definitely killed, isn't it? Now, this is the paradox that we have to constantly grapple with, you know. One side, the sovereignty of God, and on the other side, the fallen world. Now, when you're looking at the message to this church at Smyrna, you know, we would have thought that the Lord will come and say, don't worry, you're doing a good job. I'll make sure that the enemy is going to be knocked off. I make sure that you're going to live a long life. I make sure that things will be better for you. No, that's not the message that the Lord gives to this church. The Lord looks at this church and says, I commend you for standing firm. Good news for you is that more is on the way and it may also end in death. But that is not the end. That is not the end because there's a future awaiting. I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. Now, some of us may go through those, you know, those persecutions, you know, costing our very lives. But some of us may not go through those tough times costing our life. But the question would be, how can we prepare ourselves to be faithful until death? It is in the small oppositions and how we respond to that, that would enable us to be trained to be stronger in the challenging situations that will come later on. So how you deal with the mini persecutions will decide how you're going to face the major persecutions. The mini ones may be verbal, the major ones may be physical, okay? So either way, how you respond to the small ones, you know, when individuals, because of your faith, you know, do not like you, do not appreciate you, say all sorts of things against you, how you respond to that, whether that is going to give up your faith or whether that is going to help you to press on in your faith will decide whether you are going to stay firm till the very end. However, the most important thing to do is to develop a closer relationship with Jesus now, every day, because that is his strength which will only be able to take us through the intense persecution that could come into our life. So he says, be faithful until death. Even if we have to give up your life for what you believe, don't worry, because after that, there are definitely the rewards. And the rewards are, I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. Remember, there are different you know, crowns that are <laughs> mentioned in, uh, in uh in the book of Revelation. Some people may say, hey, these are not you know, actual physical crowns, but the scripture also speaks about you know, how they lay all their crowns at his feet. Basically, the word that is used here for crown, you know, in Greek is the word stephanos, which means a laurel wreath or a reward. And in that time, the winner of the Olympics will be awarded a stephanos. It denoted public honor and recognition for finishing a task well for winning. Okay, It was a laurel wreath. It was a public recognition. So that is what the Lord is saying. You are faithful here. When we enter into heaven, the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That well done that the Lord speaks about will indeed be the reward. So in a similar manner, the crown of life appears to be a recognition or a reward which Jesus gives to believers who persevere in the face of persecution. You know, there are four other crowns that are mentioned in the Bible given to the believers who do well. The crown of winning souls, the crown of righteousness for those who look forward to his second coming, the crown of glory for leaders who shepherd well, but all these crowns, if you notice, you know, it is laid at his feet to recognize, hey, look here, I am what I am because of the grace of God. I was able to do what I was able to do because of your life in me. So this is not my credit. This credit goes to you. And we are able to eternally worship God. In Revelation 4.11, it says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. So the glory goes to the Lord alone. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to be there with you during these hard times. 
and then when you finish this hard times, if that calls you home, you know, don't worry, the rewards are there. I will welcome you into heaven with the crown of life. The final word to the church at Smyrna, okay, where it says those who conquer or those who are overcomers will not be hurt by the second death, will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Believers may face physical death, but because they have had the second birth, no believer will ever face the second death. And this is the assurance that God gives to us. The Lord says, okay, I'll make sure that you are eternally secure. You are eternally secure. Just as Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, died a martyr's death, so the Lord is reminding them of this particular uh, uh, truth over here. They say, you will not be hurt. You will not be hurt. Now, it's interesting, the word that is, you know, when it says, you know, you will not be hurt, is actually a literary device known as uh, uh, Lee okay? It's like in a figure of speech, you know. This is a rhetorical device used to affirm the positive by a negation, okay? So if someone says, you know, his request presented me with no small problem, it basically means that, you know, the person who made the request had presented him a, a big problem. So when it says he sh that overcomer shall not be hurt of the second death, you know, the emphasis is, hey, there is definitely that possibility, you know, if a person does not believe, is not overcoming, is going to be hurt, you know. So if you're going to overcome, you be assured that you will not be hurt, okay. So the context here is saying that even though the church in Smyrna, okay, who are challenged to face a possible martyrdom, they are saying, face it with courage, face it with courage, because you are not going to be touched by the second death. You may be hurt here physically, but that second death, where the hurt of the second death will not be nothing in comparison with this one, because you will not definitely feel that, you will not be hurt by that because that is definitely a greater hurt for those individuals who are not overcomers. So the first death may hurt you briefly, the second none at all, because the second death is hell itself. Jesus warned us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 25, whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. To live for oneself and to draw back from suffering with Christ is to prove that one does not have genuine saving faith. Okay. So if a person pulls back when suffering comes, then it only shows whether his faith was genuine or not. For the faithful believer, the suffering of this life will be rewarded with greater comfort and riches in the life to come. The church of Smyrna was poor and persecuted in this life but was promised a crown of glory in the next. And it ends with this statement, he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember again, it is the individual, it's written to the church, but it is written to every individual believer. And you and I today are responsible, not only to hear what God has spoken to us, not only listening, but also applying it into our lives to make sure, are we really overcomers? Are we really willing to go through the persecution? Or are we asking God, God, make it lighter for me? Are we asking God, remove it from me? You know? But like James mentions, we should, our response should be, Lord, count it all joy. You know? I count it all joy. Lord, I respond well to these trials. I open my arms and welcome it because it's going to mature me, it's a testing of my faith, and also I, can, I will be assured that you are there in the boat with me, I don't have to be worried. B.H. Carroll puts it across this way, this promise was especially precious to the church at Smyrna at that time, undergoing persecution until death. 
the devil through his angel the agents might kill their bodies which is the first death but these martyrs should not be hurt of the second death let's look at some lessons from the church at smyrna this evening when trials come trials will come what should we do we must pray we must trust the lord and walk in faith the first important lesson lesson number 1 The believers in Smyrna were living a life of faith, and those who did not believe reacted in such a way that caused the believers to suffer persecution. The question we must ask ourselves is: You know, are we living in such a way that we would suffer persecution, or are we living such compromised life that nobody knows we are Christians also? As a result, no persecution. Some believers definitely suffered more than others. Some lived in fear. some of the believers might have experienced what felt to them like a lifetime of suffering or persecution which others may have held had only for a brief encounter some believers were put in prison some even feared death and that's what was happening in the time of the early church it has happened in the past and it is always going to happen it is happening in the present as well isn't it the battle between good and evil the battle between you know you know satan trying to uh, rule supreme in this world even though he, he knows he is a defeated for the battle is still continuing till one day that day when satan will be bound for all eternity you know now the question we must ask ourselves is would we be like the church at smyrna you know living a life of faith okay the verbal accusations and you know, or a personal assumptions that a person may make toward you regarding your faith may go too far at times what do you do at such times how do you react you know when people taunt you when people ridicule you when people put you down how do you respond learn to pray learn to trust the lord learn to walk in faith Secondly, always remember God is in control. No matter how out of control things may be, okay, no matter how out of control things may be, remember how Jesus started this off. He said, "I'm the first and the last." What he was saying is, "I'm the one in charge." Okay, you are looking at this particular problem, this particular persecution. I have news; it's going to continue further. But be encouraged. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. If I have sent it. i'm going to strengthen you as well so what god is assuring us is things are not going to get easier things are going to get tougher but god says he is in charge he is in control so don't worry that's the lesson that the church in smyrna had to learn and especially in these days when persecutions are on the increase that should be our response as well sometimes a person may have the question god what is happening where are you how come so much persecution remember god is in control now even though it may appear as if things are out of control he is still in charge and he has allowed all this to bring the church into maturity to bring the church as a bride pure and ready for his coming thirdly jesus knows your hardships jesus knows your hardships jesus knew what the church in smyrna were going through isn't it they were pressured by their culture because smyrna was a city that was devoted to rome and the worship of you know, the emperor and the believers may have had to submit to the civil laws of rome and they may have had to worship and offer sacrifices to the emperor and their refusal to do so would have brought pressure so there's always the cultural pressure that is there around us there would have also been pressure by friends and neighbors the believers who once worshiped false gods would have found that now they are facing pressure from their non believers you know individuals who are still worshiping these gods they have come out of that but they will still face the pressure from them because they have left them thirdly they would have also have been hated by society by society you know the jews you know the jews themselves you know and the christian community also at times can you know persecute the believers as well but the assurance is jesus knows jesus knows what you are going through and that should be an encouragement any time when you feel this is getting too much lord strengthen yourself with this knowledge jesus 
knows what you are going through. Number four, you are rich because of your faith in Christ. Jesus said, I know you are poor, but he also said, I, I know you are also rich. The believers needed to know that, that what they experienced would not make them physically prosperous, but spiritually prosperous. That's the riches that God is looking at. The Lord is not looking at you know, financial prosperity. The Lord is looking at spiritual prosperity. And the Lord says, hey, I know you are rich. And the Lord say that of us. What they were experiencing would not rob them of their eternal rewards as they remained faithful. Now, the believers needed to do know that. And no matter how things may have looked, worldly positions or possessions are not what makes a believer rich. And it is not where a person's joy or happiness comes from. And that is what they needed to learn. And that's what we need to learn. Riches does not bring us in a happiness. Okay? Happiness depends on happiness and it depends on situations, happenings. You know? But as someone has said, joy depends on the Lord. In the midst of poverty, you can be joyful. You can be rich because of our faith in Christ. Okay? Polycarp, let me share with you this incident in Polycarp's life as he faced martyrdom. He was a bishop in the church and some 50 years after John wrote the book of Revelation. Polycarp was martyred for his faith. He never wavered and continued to profess his love for Christ until his death when he was bound and burned alive. Okay. Polycarp, you know, who was a friend and, uh, of John, was 86 years old when he was dragged out of his home. The proconsul tried to force him to deny Christ. He said, swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Bishop Polycarp replied, he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul did not give up. I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad though to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is this, and this then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And the crowds, remember this was in that Olympic stadium, the crowds then gathered wood for the fire. Polycarp took off his robe and walked into it. The soldiers grabbed nails to nail him. But Polycarp told them, He who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the fire unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And before the fire was started, Polycarp prayed, I bless you for considering me worthy of this day and hour, of sharing with the martyrs in the cup of your Christ, so as to share in resurrection, to everlasting life of soul and body in the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them into your presence today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. For this and for everything, I praise and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved child. Through him and with him, may you be glorified with the Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Amen. This was his prayer. When the fire was set, Eyewitnesses say that it formed an arc like a sail around his body and his flesh wasn't consumed. The soldier seeing this then stabbed him with a sword and he died at 86 years of age because he refused to worship Caesar. He was a bishop at the church at Smyrna. And Walwood writes, the faithfulness of Polycarp to the end seems to have characterized this church in Smyrna in its entire testimony and resulted in this church's continuous faithful witness for God after many others of the early churches had long lost their love. Persecution today continues, isn't it? In different parts of the world, even in our own country as well. According to statistics from last year, almost 400 Christians are killed for their faith every month. And that is 13 every day. 
okay, 13 every day. And around 40 to 80 million Christians have been martyred in the course of history. And more than half of them were martyred in the 20th century. The fifth lesson that we can learn from the church at Smyrna is the devil is a self-serving liar and no match for God. John makes it clear over here. Testing was going to come. Okay. Devil was going to test them with all the slander and the persecution. The devil is a liar and a deceiver, and he will take every opportunity to use every person, every situation or experience to pull us away from God. But remember, the one who is in us is greater the one who is in the world. So his power and authority is definitely limited. Many people fear physical death, but that is not the death to fear. Satan may uh, threaten you with death, you know, but that's not a major thing. That's not something to fear. What needs to be feared is the second death, meaning hell. So if you have not responded to Christ, that is what you need to be afraid of, not be afraid to die. Because for the believer, once you die, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So number six, live as an overcomer. Live as an overcomer. The believers in Smyrna were commended for being overcomers. How did they be, uh, live lives of overcoming faith? They overcame the negative attacks of society. They overcame the intense pressure to reject Jesus. They overcame verbal and physical abuse. They overcame the temptation to accept the pleasures of the world and instead remained faithful to Christ. They overcame the lies of false religions. They overcame the fear of death and gained the crown of life. The world today needs to see and witness this kind of faith and spiritual boldness. And that's the charge that the Spirit says, he who has a ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's look at some application questions this evening. Number one, what is the difference between tribulation and poverty? What's the difference between tribulation and poverty? Number two, in what way is a poor believer rich and how can you use this principle to encourage those who are facing financial hardship? Number three, how do you encourage someone who is facing persecution? Number four, what would it look like if a persecuted believer is faithful? What does unfaithfulness look like? How can you prepare now so that you can be faithful then? Number five, have you faced any persecution for following Christ? How did Christ help you to be faithful in the midst of it? Number six, why do some Christians face persecution and others do not? Does this seem fair? Number seven, in what ways does suffering make you focus on what is truly important in life? Number eight, if you were to write four sentences to someone who is facing persecution, what would it say? And number nine, take some time to pray for the churches in different countries, in our own country, of, who are being persecuted. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for the church in Smyrna, a church that went through intense, intense suffering, but a church that stood firm, a church that has given us the example of Bishop Polycarp, one who was willing to be true to you till the very end. Father, when we think of persecutions that are happening all around the world today and even in our own country, we pray for the church in all these places, Lord, that you would give every believer strength to stand firm, not to live a compromised life, knowing, Lord, that you are the first and the last, knowing that you are the one who is in control, and knowing too, Lord, that death is not something that we are to be afraid of and so compromise our, our uh, Christian living, but to be individuals who are able to look forward to that eternity, to be faithful even unto death, and to look forward for the crown of life, to look forward for your well-done, good and faithful servant. Father, we pray that your words that have come to our hearts this evening would enable us to be 
encouraged to stand firm in the midst of even the small struggles, in the midst of the small slander, in the midst of the small persecutions, maybe the verbal assaults or the mental pressures, intense pressures. Father, we pray that your word to us this evening would have been an encouragement to us to stand firm knowing that you are indeed with us and you will be with us till the very end. For this we thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.